Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This is a special edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're marking one year since Governor Charlie Baker declared a state of emergency, sending most of us inside, upending our lives in ways we couldn't have imagined. On this sobering anniversary, Bay Staters are pausing to reflect on how living with COVID changed them. Universities and archivists are already curating last year's memories and memorabilia for history. But how do experts who study the future assess how our lives have been changed? What will our world look like in the days and years post-pandemic? Later in the show, Cambridge residents' memories of living with COVID are now the stuff of drama. I thought I was a dead man, but just being near a cop. Their stories are captured in the play, Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories. But first, joining me remotely, Erica Orange, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of The Future Hunters, based in New York. Hello, Erica. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. And Allison Sander is the Director of Boston Consulting Group's Center for Sensing and Mining the Future. Hi, Allison. Hey, Kelly. I'm delighted to have both of you, but I want to begin so people really are very clear about how you do your work. Give us just the briefest explanation of how you look to the future. What kind of tools? um, How do you begin to assess what the future will be? I'll start with you, Erica. Yes. So essentially, my job comes down to two very simple yet critical things, and that is studying change and understanding patterns. So I am constantly looking at where the intersections are between everything from sociocultural trends, technological, environmental, economic, political, demographic, you name it. Uh, And what I do is based very much on the human eye and understanding how all of these puzzle pieces fit together to inform a longer term view of where it is that we're moving and understanding why we're going there in the first place. Allison, same question to you. Sure. Well, Kelly, you're quite right. We don't have a crystal ball in some back room and don't make predictions about the future. We live in a highly uncertain world, but within that uncertain world, some trends, as Erica says, are much better bets than others. And you can build significant advantage if you have a view on which trends will shape our future. So we track more than 100 trends, and it's an art and a science. That includes mature trends like aging or the rise of women, emerging trends like robotics or AI, but also disruptive trends that are game changers like the power of the tech titans and wild cards such as the evolving U.S.-China competition that you guys cover. Uh, We work with organizations, as you said, to not only get a view on the trends that will shape their future, but also to help groups get an aligned view on the future using scenarios, megatrends, war games, many other tools. So the key to your work as futurists, as you've said, Allison, is living in 
uncertainty. And after a year of COVID, no sector of our lives feels certain. So how do you two professionals begin to look at unpacking that? Allison, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, it's a very good point because even COVID, we think is three uncertainties wrapped inside of each other. So there was the global pandemic and health uncertainty wrapped inside an economic recession uncertainty wrapped inside a geopolitical uncertainty. And our team at BCG has built a whole set of concepts around how you not only survive uncertainty, which used to be the goal, but actually build advantage in uncertainty. And we believe there are three parts to that. The first part we call signal advantage, which is actually peering around corners and getting earlier reactions to what's happening. So if you think about uh, the countries that reacted quicker to COVID, they saved many, many lives. But then the second advantage, and really a critical one, is decisive mover advantage. So there's a lot of groups that see the signals but aren't organized to really act on those. And finally, we think resilience is an absolutely critical skill set in the 21st century. I don't think anybody, no high school student or anyone else should step into the 21st century without a core skill set built around resilience. Erica. So let's unpack this a little bit. I think that for everyday kind of ordinary Americans who are tuning into your show, we all are facing the same thing. All of us are waking up every single morning to a new reality, there's a new challenge, there's a new solution, there's a new way of doing things, and there's a completely new future. And ultimately, you know, and I'm not alone in saying in many ways we feel so schizophrenic trying to navigate both this reality and this future that are going off in multiple directions. And, you know, I buck against the idea that, you know, we're going to transition and return to this new normal. And I think a lot of people are still under this illusion that somehow the world and in turn business is either simply going to return to the way it was or transition to this new normal, basically meaning going back to a place that could resemble some facet of our past or some facet of our previous way of working, living, socializing, learning. So for any individual or honestly any business operating in this environment, we need to think bigger because it's not just enough to think in terms of adaptation. And Allison is absolutely right. It comes down to human resilience. But we also have to understand that this pandemic was predictable. And the changes that we've seen occur in the last 12 months are not just because of the pandemic. And I think this is where a lot of people really get it wrong because it's merely a building block. And what I mean by that is we have been going through these transformations now since what many economists were referring to as the recession back in around 2005 and 2008. And that was really the foundational view. That is what rocked our core. And we continue to go through this economic transformation because it wasn't just a recession. So understanding that we've been going through this constant transformation which is upending everything that we understand from new notions of time to the disintermediating effects of artificial intelligence and robotics and automation. All of these things have merely just been accelerated by COVID. So a lot of the trends that we're seeing aren't inherently new. It's just that they're being shot out of a cannon. When the pandemic came, it was like we hit this COVID accelerator effect where a foot was put on the gas and we're like, oh man, 
all of these things that were disrupting our way of life, now it's really come to fruition solely because of COVID. So we have to see it as part of a much bigger and broader pyramid in order to really understand uh, just how disruptive it has been and will continue to be as we move into the future. So you're both saying that COVID-19 and the crisis around it was predictable, but I can hear people listening to this going, well, I didn't hear you predicting it. <laughs> I mean, why didn't, why didn't we know it was coming? So I, I, I want you to, to speak to that and, and uh, explain what that means. Absolutely. So predictable and forecastable often get uh, mixed up. And a lot of times we know what's going to come. The harder part to predict is the pace at which it will come. So We've had, we started our Center for Sensing and Mining the Future in 2005. We had global pandemics as part of the 100 trends we are tracking since then. And the reason for that is that um, if you look at our increasingly global world where within one month, uh, many of us commuted across the world and we increasingly are getting these zoonotic illnesses where we're in animal space and they're in our space, it was pretty much inevitable that something would happen. I don't think the futurists predicted it would take this form. And even the best plans for the U.S. thought it would affect some states, but there would be other states unaffected. So I think the scale and scope, probably it's fair to say few people planned. But there are, for most of these uncertainties, Cassandra's who've been warning about them for quite a while. Bill Gates is one of the people who's quoted, he spoke at TED several years ago and said this was inevitable. Barack Obama set up a whole center to address this. So I, I think what's fascinating is many people think these things come out of a complete black box, and that really isn't true. The challenge for our clients today is to figure out which of the enormous plethora of uncertainties to prioritize and you know how big a plan to really put together. So the pace, uh, the scope, those are important parts of it. But I don't think there were many futurists who were completely surprised that this happened. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are futurists Erica Orange of The Future Hunters and Allison Sander of the Boston Consulting Group's Center for Sensing and Mining the Future. Futurists pondering the future of our post-pandemic world. So I want to circle back to the new normal. And both of your resistance, I think I agree with you, of people sort of rushing toward what they believe will be something that looked like what it did pre-COVID. How can you talk to us about the change that COVID has brought and that what we're leaving behind and what is likely to stay based on, you know, how you analyze all of the indicators that you do? Allison, I'll start with you. Sure. I, I think it's really fascinating, and, and Erica started this discussion because what we saw under COVID is some trends that had been occurring for quite a while crashed. Things like uh, energy price rise turned negative. Travel, obviously, you've seen almost no airlines in the sky. So some things crashed, but what was really interesting and not as many people were tracking is whole other trends actually accelerated. And that's where a lot of people made a lot of money. It's also why COVID was so divisive, because if you worked in travel or hospitality or retail, this was devastating. But if you happen to be in e-commerce, this was one of the biggest accelerants that people have seen. 
So some of the things that I think will be with us and really shape this new normal, whatever we want to call it, I think working is going to fundamentally reshift. I think that uh, it's very hard to imagine that people will return to a kind of 24 by 7 approach to an office and commuting and all of that. I think that will have ripple effects and second order effects on where many people choose to live, on home design, on the future shape of cities. We'll see more of a WFA, work from anywhere approach. There also have been tectonic shifts in digitalization and technology. So companies have now invested to build powerful online platforms and infrastructure that allowed Amazon to be at their 2019 Christmas high every day since COVID hit. So e-commerce, telemedicine, online teaching, online counseling, e-everything are absolutely now a permanent and larger part of our landscape. I also very much see COVID as an accelerant for some of the social risks we've had. I think lower income individuals were disproportionately vulnerable and exposed in many ways. But conversely, the 0.01% did quite well during COVID, as did the stock market. So America's billionaires saw their wealth grow by a trillion since March of 2020. By the way, that wasn't the case in the 2008 financial crisis. So part of the COVID legacy, sadly, is that the brunt, I don't think, hit people equally and has definitely contributed to widening already significant divides. Erica. I think one of the things that we're seeing both individually and from a community level and also organizationally is a desire for human-centric design and putting the heart back into what it is that we do. And this is one of the silver linings uh, because I think it's very easy to go to the dystopian. But what are some of the opportunities here? What have we seen as some positive indicators? We're undoubtedly going to see the hybridization of work. And this is something that has been taking root also for years with the rise of virtual and flexible work and nomadic work and the work from anywhere movement. But it also is an opportunity to really look inside our organizations and take a look at what we do from a culture perspective. And this is one of the things that I think COVID is really upending. And I'm a nerd and I love acronyms because it allows me to kind of wrap my head around where the future is going. And there's a new acronym that I, and a framework that I've created around the future of work post-COVID. Um, and I call it the Workplace Culture Chain. And Chain is essentially an acronym that stands for Core Beliefs and Coherence, Human Potential, Accountability and Autonomy, Inclusion, and Nurture. And the nurture piece in all of this is so critical because we are entering a world of uh, this mental health apocalypse where loneliness, stress, depression, all of these things are skyrocketing because of COVID. And there's a way to put the human back at the center, human-centric organizations, and really leading from a values perspective. And I think we're also seeing this reflected in our communities. Many people have embraced slowing down. They've rewritten their own definitions of community. People are gathering in different ways. We see uh, something like nostalgia as a powerful driver. So that's one of the things that kind of galvanizes me as I think post-COVID is that ultimately it is forcing us to rethink our priorities and it is forcing us to rethink ultimately what matters. And I think that from there, uh, we're going to see a revitalization of everything from the simple to the creative 
and anything and everything in between. And that, to me, is a major silver lining. And, you know, as I a parent and I have a three-and-a-half-year-old son and I try to navigate my own future with him, um, that is, those are the moments where I pause and think you can never disintermediate humanity and the power of human resilience. I think those silver linings are very important to point out, uh, particularly around the caring piece of it, which I think some people would say we were driving pre-COVID towards something that was a lot less caring. Both of you are women. And one of the factors that has become a clear, stark reality of this in terms of employment and how life has changed for so many women is that they've been forced out of the workspace or they've lost traction if they were climbing the corporate ladder. But even people who were not on the ladder really have been hurt a lot because of the responsibilities that of child care and wage earning and all of that. So I'd love you to both respond to what do you see happening for those women who have been impacted greatly and for those communities of color who also have been impacted greatly? Absolutely. This is what a lot of people are dubbing the she session, and it is very real. And there cannot be a conversation about the she session, a she covery, without a conversation around childcare. And there are long-term structural changes that have to happen whether that is creating a solid care infrastructure, whether it is guaranteeing fair and equal rate wages, whether it is guaranteeing quality benefits or creating strong workplace protections. And I was reading recently, I think this was a September McKinsey study, it basically was saying that one-third of mothers were considering taking a leave of absence, dropping out of the workforce entirely, cutting their hours, or even moving to part-time or switching to a less demanding role. Uh, because of these pressures on them. And we can't have a conversation about these things without really rethinking our educational structures to begin with, because the move to online learning was just a Band-Aid. And so many people are questioning whether that's the future. And it's a soapbox of mine. It, it absolutely is not. It is not sustainable. So all of these things are overlapping, because we can't have a conversation about women in the workplace, without childcare, without education, and even the fact that a lot of the women were in lower wage jobs, and those are the jobs that are also being disintermediated by smart technologies and are going onto software and are not coming back. So this is a big conversation, and it's not just going going to go away as we come out the other end of COVID. That's my guest, Erica Orange of The Future Hunters. Now, Allison Sander of the Boston Consulting Group Center for Sensing and Mining the Future. What do you say about that? How will we how will the future be for these groups, women, as I've mentioned, and also communities of color who are at highest risk during COVID? I think there's almost no one I can imagine whose life wasn't upended by COVID. I think the form that that upending take or took uh, varies a lot by age and, and where you were and whether you were living on your own or in community. There's no question that women were very much hit, as you said, uh, by the, the workspace shifts and unemployment. And some of that was the role that women play caring for kids and stepping up as kids were home. But I think it's too simple to only talk about that dimension because some of the fascinating elements we're tracking in terms of women is that some of the most effective countries in dealing with COVID were led by women. So New Zealand has gotten a lot of press, Germany, but uh, there's 
you know, many of the countries that were very successful had female leaders. And we also are looking at the fact that this Congress has the largest representation of women historically we've ever had. So I think women are getting a voice at the same time as the total upending of careers and how vulnerable many populations were on multiple levels to the way COVID hit, the sectors it hit, how it hit. I think communities of color are really a critical part of this and there's almost been a, a veil lifted for people who weren't already tracking this before. But African Americans, as, as your station has pointed out, were 12% of the U.S. population and 34% of COVID deaths. So the type of exposures, the type of global inequities, but also health inequities, economic inequities, there is a kind of veil being lifted, if, if it ever was in place, where everybody is now looking at a much more transparent reality, and hopefully that will be one of the silver linings coming out of this. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Erica Orange of The Future Hunters and Allison Sander of the Boston Consulting Group's Center for Sensing and Mining the Future. We're tapping into their expertise as futurists to consider how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed us and will change us. From a futurist perspective, are there some things that you can point to, be they emotional or much more concrete than that, that are now permanently changed as a result of this? I'm curious, what do you think right now permanently changed, Allison? Well, I think that some of the veil lifting is part of it. I do think it was a, we were all in one giant test tube together. So I do think how we work, uh, the image companies have of workers having to be on premise, uh, that's absolutely going to go away for lots of different reasons. I think even the trend that's been very durable for the last four decades of urbanization and everyone being forced to live in more expensive cities, I think that is very much going to change. But I also think there's uh, this has been a very both and experience. So some of what's changed are new opportunities. Uh, some of what's changed has been an increased polarization in this country. If you think about uh, the reaction to COVID pitting maskers against anti-maskers, vaxxers against anti-vaxxers, making it super hard to find middle ground. So the fact that citizens here had a hard time to come together around something that affected us all so profoundly, that is something that at the moment is part of the legacy of COVID that I think we really need to be aware of. And then, as I mentioned, the global, and particularly in the U.S., the divides that are now not only economic, but health and educational, uh, those are absolutely something that we now see as a country and we either respond to or pay the consequences for not responding to. Erica? I think one of the things that has permanently changed, uh, and this is going to sound very conceptual, but it's our relationship to time and space. So what I mean by that is we have, for the last probably 15 years, been experiencing a world of boundarylessness. There are no boundaries between anything anymore. Everything is amorphous. Nothing is linear. So I think one of the things that's permanently going to change is this whole concept of nonlinearity. 
The economy is one that is marked by boundarylessness, but it's also changing our notions, and I would think permanently, around two other critical things, and that is trust and truth. And the boundaries between who and what we trust and who and what are truthful are going to be permanently changed, particularly through our technologies and social media. And that's a really, really big critical one because that underpins everything. So I've asked you to uh, use your expertise to look forward. That's what you do as futurists. Now I'm going to ask you to come back personally and ask how has a year of COVID changed you individually? Allison. That's such a great question. I mean, uh, there's a, a personal and, and also a professional answer to this. So personally, I think for a lot of us, it was an incredible pause for reflection about what really matters in our lives. I mean, which individuals from the many we've been in touch with have just been critical and uh, we need to stay in touch with. Um, really understanding sort of who are in our communities and, and who we are, as uh, Erica is saying, our boundaries of responsibilities are. And, but I think also reflecting on what really gives meaning and what really matters. And I started the uh, COVID crisis Jan 4th when in 2020 when the first people in my network uh, said, hey, you know, this has been reported in China. It came through the Taiwan and Hong Kong health ministries. And it became very clear as a futurist that this would go global, that it could be a recession trigger. And as a strong believer in resilience, I started a journal very early for myself called the COVID Recovery Journal. I wanted to be sure I came out of this uh, better, stronger, uh, not uh, completely demoralized. And I think professionally, it's changed what we track. It's changed the kind of indicators we look at. But there are very few metrics for things like well-being or resilience. You know, be very powerful to understand which communities have recovered, why have some recovered quicker than others. But I think all of us need to develop our resilient muscles. This was one crisis, and sadly, as futurists, there are going to be more on our horizon. So it's really a, um, a trial run, in a sense, to learn how to cope with something that's absolutely been devastating. Erica, how has the year of COVID changed you? We are a family business. My husband is my business partner. And prior to COVID, I was traveling the world with my son, bringing him on work trips. And I had the flexibility, which was something that I always valued. And I was with him part-time. But then it was a very different reality when he was taken out of school. Uh, I was living in New York City. And the three of us were full-time in a midtown Manhattan 850-square-foot apartment with no end in sight. And for a few months, I put on my mother hat. And I just delved very deep into making sure that his life was as normal and fun and whimsical and playful as possible. And I put work second. Um, it was that instinct that took over, which was not sustainable, but for the short term, it worked. And we made a family move and a decision not to live in New York and move to my hometown of Rochester. Like a lot of people leaving urban centers, uh, COVID was that pause where we reevaluated what it is that mattered truly as a family. And just to echo Allison's point, you know, for many companies, human resilience is not on the balance sheet. 
how do we measure resilience? And that is such a critical one. How do we measure human tenacity and a sense of grit? Grit is getting us through this. But how do we measure that in HR circles? How do we hire around that? How do we acquire talent differently? And even self-regulation, self-regulating emotions in a mental health epidemic, and even just getting our heads screwed on right, getting out all of those kind of mental cobwebs so that we are approaching our work and our families through clear eyes and fresh thinking. I thank you both for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Erica Orange is Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of The Future Hunters, based in New York. And Allison Sander is the Director of Boston Consulting Group's Center for Sensing and Mining the Future. Coming up, a year when nothing was the same and yet each passing day was marked by sameness. The year of COVID, a year millions of Americans documented their lives in journals, diaries, and songs. In Cambridge, some residents gave voice to their experiences in a unique way, capturing this period in their lives in a play produced by the Multicultural Arts Center. Cambridge, our town, our stories. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special year of COVID edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. When is a play like real life? When the words and stories are real life. It is, if you will, a snapshot of life during an unprecedented time. The time of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, the pandemic. Not everyone made it through. And for many who did, they will be forever changed. What we knew of as normal is no more. That's the narrator from Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories, the play created in the style of Thornton Wilder's 1938 classic drama, Our Town. Wilder's play was fictional, based on the everyday experiences of people living in a small town. Cambridge's version is based on the everyday experiences of residents living during a year of COVID. No fiction here. Theirs are authentic reflections of a scary, uncertain time. The test administered to him two days before he died came back negative at the end of the week, but I doubt its veracity. The new normal that every encounter and every trip out of the house is fraught with hypervigilance is heartbreaking. My home and family, the place and people who would not exist without me, had me hiding in the bathroom these past few months just for some quality alone time. The world has become an empty husk of our old reality. Joining me remotely, three of the contributors whose COVID stories were staged in Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories. Ken Field is a Cambridge-based saxophonist. Hi, Ken. Hello. Nice to talk with you. Nice to talk with you. Theodora Skiatis is executive director of the nonprofit Cambridge Local First. Hello, Theodora. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And Jeff Robinson is also a musician living in Cambridge. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have all of you. This was really an interesting project, and it seemed um, in so many ways ahead of its time um, because we are at the year point when Governor Baker 
declared a state of emergency because of the the COVID-19 virus. And in many ways, the stories that were collected for Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories, were ahead of their time in terms of marking the impact of COVID in the everyday lives of local residents. These stories were collected between April and September of 2020 under the direction of Shelley Neal. And then the Cambridge Multicultural Arts Center pulled it all together, framing the stories with news events and announcements via social media. But the stories of the local residents uh, were the important piece of this. I wanted to start this way with each of you, which is to get you to think back before you sent in your stories before you sort of collected your thoughts to think about where you were and tell me how you were doing pre-pandemic emergency. So I'll start with you, Ken. You know, before the pandemic, my personal goals were to become a better saxophone player and to work on uh, some projects, including uh, a nonprofit in Cambridge called Tutoring Plus uh, of Cambridge provides free tutoring services to Cambridge youth. What were you doing every day, though? I mean, what was your everyday sort of life like? Well, crazy, <laughs> crazy and hectic. <laughs> uh, and I had a lot of gigs uh, as a, a sax player. So I was very busy. I was working on my music and I was working on these other projects. Uh, and, you know, it all came to a halt. Theodora, what was happening before um, the pandemic for you? What was your everyday life like? I would say similarly, it was pretty busy seeing friends, going out, doing work. Always say from the organizational perspective, it's been a tough time for local businesses for a few years now. So interestingly, the effects of COVID have exacerbated pre-existing trends. So it, it was already a tough time in the context of the nonprofit at which I work. Um, but in terms of my, my personal life, things, things were good. So give me a, an idea of a day in the life of Theodora pre-pandemic. I actually uh, have a few roles. So in addition to my work at Cambridge Local First, um, I was also consulting to the federal government on foreign policy. Um, and so I normally did that work as well during the day. And then uh, in the evenings, I would see friends, maybe go out to dinner, maybe watch a movie, maybe read a book with my, you know, hang out with my partner, maybe see some family. Yeah, basically work, but, but uh, at a more comfortable cadence, I would say. Okay. And Jeff, pre-pandemic life for you. I work at the Multicultural Arts Center who uh, produced this video. So I was working on a production there with a dance company and was doing the tech and right before the quarantine started. And just shortly before all of that, very much like Ken, you know, gigging and trying to get as many gigs as you can, which is what musicians do. But my days are pretty full, to be honest with you. So let me pick up from there, uh, Jeff, and say when the announcement came, um, from Governor Baker that we're in a state of emergency and we're going to shut down. You know, how did it strike you in that moment? What would you think? Well, keeping up with the news and how this virus was spreading across the world, it seemed like it was our turn to slow down like the world had already done. So I wasn't surprised, to be honest. Same question to you, Theodora. When the governor made the announcement of the state of emergency, what did you think initially? <laughs> I didn't think. I went straight into nonstop action. So my work at Cambridge Local First had been part-time before the pandemic hit. And then it went into like full-time plus. I mean, I was working 60 plus hours a week for several months. 
basically, I just started responding to the mountain of emails that came my way and scheduling calls and starting to, to organize and advocate, checking with businesses, organizing community conversations. Basically, I didn't really get a moment to catch my breath and think for about three months. I went straight to my computer and started working. Um, and uh, for you, Ken, what did you think in that moment when the governor announced the state of emergency? I, first, I want to say we're lucky to have people like Theo and Jeff in the community uh, to, to do the important work they do. But uh, I felt lucky. I'll tell you why, because uh, you asked what I had been doing before. I had just gotten back from uh, a gig in Australia. I had uh, been able to do a Mardi Gras performance uh, at Regatta Bar with my band Revolutionary Snake Ensemble. I had just done a gig at uh, the Burn sitting in with a friend of mine. So I had gotten a lot of uh, just under the wire, some pretty great things. Uh, and I felt very fortunate, very lucky. I'd been able to squeeze those in before the door shut uh, and then the door shut. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Cambridge, our town, our stories and all of your involvement in it. How did you decide to get involved, Ken? Well, I saw the email that was sent out and I thought, well, you know, I don't know. I, I've been doing some things that are important to me personally, and I'll submit them and uh, share them. I don't know if anybody will be interested, but that was how I got involved. I, I just put down some things I'd been doing. Had you been recording your thoughts in a journal or in any other kind of way before this opportunity presented itself? No, I'd been taking extensive mental notes. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Theodora, what about you? How did you become involved? Yeah, the Multicultural Arts Center is a member of Cambridge Local First. So we're, we're a network of 500 organizations in Cambridge. And so I've been in close contact with Shelly for a while. She usually joins our community conversations. And so anything that I could do to contribute to an effort that she was spearheading, I was excited about. And also, we have had a lot to talk about. Um, our story has been um, quite extensive this last year. So I had a lot to say. Um, so, yeah, I was very happy to contribute my story to, to the effort. Now, you commented that you were just sort of flat out busy. So I'm guessing you didn't have time to sort of make a note in a journal or a diary saying, this is how I'm feeling in the moment. You just, when this opportunity came up, and of course you had the relationship with Shelley, you just sort of did like Ken and, and operated out of your mental notes? Yes, although I would add, I basically use friendships as journals. So I have a, a lot of reflection conversations with my friends. And so I have had the opportunity to like think through, process, and cultivate my thoughts. It's an oral format, not written, um, but it, it acts somewhat like a journal. And I also get feedback from them, which is really nice. A journal wouldn't necessarily do that. Um, so it, it, I, I had the opportunity to think through things, um, but not in written format. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff, I know that you were a somewhat reluctant volunteer for uh, this project. As we look at this period, and again, the Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories play really incorporates news events and announcements via social media to frame all of your stories. That's the the uh, knitted fabric in between your stories. And one of the other pandemics going on in this time, of course, was the racial reckoning. A lot of conversation was sparked by the death of George Floyd. And your story relates to that. But initially, you weren't interested in participating. Why was that? Well, I, I think I should tell you how it started for me to include this story. 
was that incident did happen, and it's probably best people look at the video. Well, let's stop right there. Let's take a listen from your story in the play, Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories. Here's Jeff Robinson sharing his experience, hearing police sirens and seeing the cruisers stop right across from him. And as soon as I bent down to put the pizza down on the passenger front seat, I heard police sirens go off, police sirens. And there weren't that many people out there walking around on the streets, so I, you know, I got a little nervous. You know, I was hoping that the cars would just keep on going past me, but they did not. I was certain that they were coming after me. I was certain that they were coming after me. I mean, the big issue here is not whether they were coming after me or not. I thought I was a dead man, but just being near a cop, So that's a piece of your story, Jeff Robinson. Tell us about why you were reluctant to share that in the play initially. When that happened and I came home and told the story to my wife, she suggested that I put it on Facebook. And I wasn't thinking of that. I just wanted to share something that happened with my wife. So I put it on Facebook and then obviously people responded and one of my coworkers saw it, and then uh, we had a meeting, and Shelley thought it would be good to be put in this film. Are you glad you did it now? Well, it's important to talk about, but it was a very difficult moment for me, and I've had a lot of moments like this with police officers. That's why I was triggered, per se. So for some people, you know, it's, watching people, you know, going to the streets. But for me, it's a very real thing. It's not, it's not an article in the newspaper. It's not a passing fad or whatever mm-hmm. you might mm-hmm. want to call it. It's, it's, I've had several moments like this with police officers, and, and it's, it's not an easy thing to talk about. So I wasn't sure that I wanted to relive it again by talking about it. I think that's what makes this play so resonant um, because each of you represent experiences uh, in some way that other people were having in the community. Likewise, Ken, different kind of story, but I was taken with your piece in the play, which we're going to listen to in just a second, for what it represented. So first, let's listen to you sharing. This is Ken Fields sharing that He's nearly completed his goal of memorizing a specific piece of music during the pandemic. After several abortive attempts, I gave up. But then, with social isolation in full swing, with all my spring and summer gigs canceled, and with a bit more time on my hands, I jumped back in. I committed to memorizing the 42 measures of mostly 16th notes, or about 655 notes, by the end of the summer. I'm pretty nearly there. I was taken that your experience was like so many other people who were shut inside and decided, all right, I'm going to do the thing that I say I want to do if I have the time and I have the concentration and I'm going to try to do that. It's a coping mechanism. How did you see it? And and why did you want people to hear your story? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of hurt 
that goes along, continues to go along with the pandemic. A lot of people are are struggling uh, in many ways. And I think having a positive is helpful. And for me, turning, you know, lemon, lemonade, that kind of thing, trying to find the the positive side of this. Uh, And for me, the positive side was this opportunity to address a personal goal of mine, which was to memorize the uh, prelude movement of uh, Bach's first uh, cello suite, solo cello suite on saxophone. I've subsequently gone on. I'm, I'm about halfway through the entire suite, the, the seven movements. And my, I've created a new life goal, which is to memorize all six of the, uh, the cello suites in their entirety. I, I'm not sure if I'll make it before I, I leave this planet, but that's my, my goal. You know, at the same time, while, while I had this personal goal, I realized that I was privileged to be able to address that goal with, as I say, the, the hurt that's going on. But I think it is important to, to share some positives uh, and to maybe help people cope in, in their own way. Well, I think the point of the play is really to have a, a wide expanse of people's experiences. So they're, they're very, very reflective of the moment, um, because that's what this play is doing, is capturing this moment really for all time. And Theodora, to that end, the work that you were doing, just as your work, uh, turned out to be right at the center of uh, what was going on across the country, not just here in Cambridge. And it, it was critical, which was, you know, how businesses thrive. Let's take a listen to you in the play. Here you are talking about the plight of small local businesses during the pandemic. We are in dire times for our local businesses, which constitute the bedrock of our economy. Many are closing, and some estimates suggest that 40% of our local businesses will fail to reopen following the crisis. Ultimately, we aim to provide meaningful support to local business owners during this challenging time. Theodora, at the time that you, you know, gave your thoughts for this play, did you have any idea the sort of monumental impact was going to be levied on those small businesses? I did because it, it had already started happening. Um, I think there was a, a study that showed that this summer something like one into you know, local businesses in San Francisco had closed their doors by August. Um, the effect was pretty immediate. And so I had a sense of the scale because one previous research suggested that uh, during crises, small businesses fall pretty quickly. But it, I saw it happen before my eyes as soon as the pandemic hit in March. The number of people who were reaching out and the severity of the issues that they were experiencing was palpable and very hard to deal with. Um, so yeah, I, I had a sense of it because it was an immediate effect um, once mid-March came about. So for someone who is so identified with this, I mean, this was this is your thing. This is, you, you feel very close. And we've seen some of the stories of small businesses that have now gone away. How did that hit you emotionally? Yeah, it's really hard. So I guess on a few levels. One is that I've had a lot of conversations with folks who have come crying and very sorrowful to to have to close their businesses and or just to have to let go of so much of their staff. And so the stories I've heard time and time again this past year have been very difficult. Also, my parents and my aunts and uncles and and some of my cousins are all small business owners. And so it's um, a familial issue as well. Uh, My dad has suggested that the restaurant that he owns in the Bronx in New York City 
has a 50% shot of making it through the pandemic at this point. So I, I see it in the stories of my family um, whose respective small businesses have really suffered. I would say pretty much every business that I've spoken to has suffered at least some revenue loss, um, but some of them are operating at 5% of the revenues that they were the previous year. And almost everyone has had to let go of staff. So it's, it's been pretty traumatic. So even though I'm not a business owner myself, it's like secondhand trauma every time I talk with folks. So it, it's been pretty heavy. And we have to remember, I think it was brought home during this time that businesses really mean people. Yeah. You know, it's it, you say business, it's, it feels a little remote. But when you realize how many people are connected with those businesses, it has taken on a different meaning, I believe, for many of us who are not small business owners, but who are consumers. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a question that we're asking everyone during this time, this moment we're marking a year of living with COVID. How has it changed you? Jeff? Well, my relationships with my family, it's more important than it was in the past, I must admit, though I've always been very close to my family. But um, now I just feel like, well, I know they're much more important to me and and, and my friends as well. But, you know, my family is kind of all over the country. And uh, and the whole Zoom thing has really been important to everyone. I'm not a big fan of it, but it's very, you know, it's it's real important. So I would say that and just trying to listen more intently, though, you know, I'm a musician, so that doesn't seem to be too hard, but to listen to what people are feeling, not what they're saying, but not just what they're saying, but what is, what do they mean when they say it? So I think it's it's changed me in, in that regard, it, and it's pretty obvious to me. It's not subtle. It's a very obvious change that I see in myself. Theodora? I would say it has driven home the importance of strong family and friend relationships and, and just how critical those are to mental health. So the conversations that I've had with my family this last year have been very challenging. Everyone's been affected in different ways um, because of where they are and the work that they're doing. So it has reaffirmed to me the importance of my family and my friends as critical pieces in my life. I'd also say it has shown to me how fragile everything is. I've seen a lot of trauma and, and a lot of hardship this last year, and it really impressed on me how much care we have to give to, to keep our systems strong and how important it is that we all contribute. So as a result, I'm actually running for Cambridge City Council this year. And, and part of what drove me to, to make that decision is the recognition of the inherent fragility of our systems and our, and our ecosystem um, in so many ways and the desire to to contribute to its strengthening. So I've definitely been impacted in a lot of ways. Um, and then last, I'd just say the importance of mental health as a, as a really critical piece to overall health. Um, I have supported a lot of friends and family who've gone through serious challenges this last year in, in all kinds of ways. And um, it's just important to have people there to support you. Ken? Well, I think I learned a lot. I've learned the value of slow. I've learned the value of less. I have learned the importance of community. I mentioned before that I'm uh, on the board of Tutoring Plus of Cambridge. We've pivoted to uh, an online operation for providing free tutoring services to kids in Cambridge. And that's become such an important uh, role in the community. 
I've learned the importance of being able to adapt. I'm a member of the organizing committee of the Honk Festival, a festival of activist street bands. We couldn't have our festival this year, of course, but we pivoted to an online international festival and we made it something that it could not have been as, a, as an in-person festival, an international festival of street bands, of community-based uh, groups. And I've also learned uh, that you can and need to keep in touch with people. Uh, it's so nice to hear uh, my good friend Jeff's voice, but keeping in touch with uh, friends because we don't see each other in person, keeping in touch in other ways is so important and, and valued. So Cambridge, Our Town, Our Stories is really about a community. I've just asked you about how you've been changed individually. I wonder how you see your community changed as a result of a year of COVID. Ken? You know, it's, of course, it's all over. But the community that I'm in in Cambridge, uh, Central Square area, has shown its strength and resilience in so many ways. Everybody says, but we're more powerful together. The the work that's being done for in Central Square, Starlight Square, uh, Michael Monestim, and and all the people who are leading the effort to bring us through this, it's it's just uh, inspiring in in many ways. And so I, I think, I don't know if that I could point to a specific thing that has changed, but I think uh, the sense of community has been strengthened through this, uh, I think. Theodora? It has fostered collaboration between spaces, places, and sectors. So, for example, the different business associations in Cambridge, there are six of us, get together now on a biweekly basis to talk about how, how we can work together in service of our constituents. Um, that was not something that was happening pre-COVID. And it's also increased collaboration between geographies. So, for example, we now join the Somerville Business Association Leader Meetings to talk about how we can help you know, local businesses in Somerville. And I'm part of a group called the American Independent Business Alliance. It's a network of independent business alliances all helping to amplify local economies around the country. And I have built partnerships all over the country in Spokane, Washington, Portland, Maine, New Orleans, Louisiana, Detroit, Michigan, all over the country, um, independent business alliances have come together to talk about how we can support each other during this difficult time. So I feel like I have made so many friends, people I've never met in person, but people who I feel really close to um, as a result of the pandemic. So I think it's brought us together. And Jeff? I agree with both of uh, those statements. And I think that's across the board through pretty much everyone who has been affected by this really hard and the arts community in general around the world has been affected by this. And, uh, you know, I want to applaud Shelley Neal at the Multicultural Arts Center for uh, producing this video that has, you know, gotten quite a bit of likes on social media and the community at the Multicultural Arts Center is growing and trying to do more events like this going to be streaming live there soon with a couple of events as well as doing some videotaping. So we're trying to broaden our horizons there. And I think the arts community is, is thriving. I know musicians in general are very adaptive. Um, so whatever we need to do, we do and we figure it out. And there's always somebody pushing musicians forward in general. 
uh, as a community of people. So like Ken said, you learn to adapt, and those communities learn to adapt. And I, I do some web development, so I've been online. I've put a school up online, online school of poetry. You know, being online is where the community is right now. Um, that's where the people are. One last question to all of you. What do you think about being a witness to history and a documented one at that because of this play? You want to tackle that, Jeff? <laughs> I guess, you know, we all are witnesses of history because we are here during this time. And something my son said soon as this kind of happened was, you know, what a time to be alive. And we're fortunate that we are alive right now because so many did not make it through this through this time. So uh, everyone has a camera in their pocket. So there is a lot of documentation going on right now that's important that led to this video being made. So I am still somewhat reluctant to be part of this, but I understand these are important times. And you know, I think there are a lot of great documents out there, not just this one. Ken? I think that this project is quite important. And uh, for, for the reasons that, uh, that Jeff mentioned, uh, that you imp- implied, Kelly, this is a, such a unique moment in the world. And people will be studying this for decades and, and beyond. And so to have this historical document in video of a little snapshot of a small part of life during this time, I think is incredibly important. You know, memories fade, and uh, uh, but this will, will continue. So I'm proud to be part of this, and uh, I think it is uh, really commendable that this was put together, and I'm glad about that. Theodora? I'm proud to have contributed my story, and I think it's so important to document stories like these I love this effort, and I, I like that it's brought together different voices from from different backgrounds to build a more comprehensive picture of, of what the experience in Cambridge has been this last year. To think of myself as a, a witness to history is a little bit daunting and intimidating, but I hope I, I can play my part well and do it justice. And, and I hope that I've, I've been helpful to others during this time. It's been challenging, but I'm um, happy to be alive as well. Theodore Skiatis is the executive director of the nonprofit Cambridge Local First. Ken Field is a Cambridge-based saxophonist, and Jeff Robinson is a musician also living in Cambridge. That's it for this week's special edition of the show. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>